Hey, welcome to Crosswalk Church. Today, Pastor Dan is bringing you a teaching, so head over to crosswalkphoenix.com and find today's message under the worship tab. There you can download the Crosswalk notes to follow along. And now, here's Pastor Dan. Someone has to pay for that. You know that. Someone's got to pay for that. That can be said either by a parent whose child tries to sneak the candy bar onto the conveyor belt. Someone's got to pay for that. Or after you broke the window on the house, someone's got to pay for that. And usually when I say it, it means I have to pay for that. But it's something that that we teach our children from a very young age, and that is this reality that things cost something. They cost money, they cost time, whatever it is, that there is a cost involved. And so it can be too if you're at a a restaurant that you understand that you go there, whether it's fast food, if you go and they're going to ask you to pay for your order, or whether you're at a nicer sit-down restaurant and they bring you the check and then you get to see people, I got to go to the bathroom all of a sudden. You know, they don't want to see the bill. And, And then you're like, okay, everything comes with a cost. But then the next question is, who's going to pay for this? And so usually what happens is when we're in situations like that, we might, if we're able, we try to be generous. Maybe we are someone that with, with the people we are out with, that they look to us as someone who is capable and, and willing to make a payment. But then there are other times when the question is asked, who is going to pay for this? And that's when I ask the question, when I can't afford it. And now all of a sudden, it, it starts to get bigger. And these are the, our expenses that are outside of my pay range. And so I wonder, who's going to pay for this event? Who's going to pay for this schooling? Who's going to pay for this college? Who's going to pay for this master's program? That you start looking at this and, and you realize that your resources are tapped. And, and you don't know how you're going to do it. Maybe there are people here today and, and who are in that situation and you know that pain and that heaviness of, of trying to afford something or pay for something that you can't afford. And that is why what we are going to be looking at today is really about cost and payment and who's going to pay for it and especially who's going to pay for things I cannot afford. And of course, we're looking at this from a spiritual standpoint. We're looking at this from God's perspective, because the, the debt and the cost that we are going to be talking about today is a debt of, of sin, a debt that we owe to God, a debt that we cannot pay. But, but it's important that, first of all, we understand that there is a debt, that we understand that, that a payment for debt has been made, and we recognize the God, the God Almighty, the Lord, who has paid this debt by sacrificing himself. So we are going to start in Isaiah chapter 53, beginning with the first verse. Isaiah 53, verse 1. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? So two parts to this. Who has believed our message, and secondly, who has had God's arm revealed to them? Isaiah 52, and and the chapters before that, talk about... The, the promised one who's going to be coming, the servant of the Lord. 
And it's in Isaiah 52 that, that Isaiah writes, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news. And so, so what he's saying is when you have a messenger who comes to bring good news and it's someone who's been running across the mountains, he picks the most disgusting part of them, which would be their feet and their sandals, which as they're running are probably dirty and bloody and gross. And he said, good news is so great that even their feet are beautiful. And his point is, is well taken. And, and the point is, is that you need to hear that message. And so in the, in the blank, you can write God's message of deliverance and rescue is met by ignorance. There are just people who don't know. They're ignorant and by skepticism. And so I don't want you to miss the, the, the picture there. Who has believed our message and, and to who has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And so this is the big reveal of my arms. I was lifting weights this morning. You get to see my guns out, sun's out, guns out. It would be a great reveal if I had big biceps, which I don't. In which case, you kind of lose the picture. But what God is saying is this, is that what he's going to do for Israel is he's going to pull back his sleeve a little bit. And when when he does, people are going to look at what he does and go, man, you're impressive. This is an impressive God because in the midst of it, people were saying he was a weak God because at the time of Isaiah, they were being overrun by other, other countries. So here's what's happening one more time. Ignorance of God, that they, they have never seen his arm and how strong it is, or skepticism, that they don't believe the message. What this means for you today, and I'm gonna have you repeat this after I say it, and you, you, this is a point you have to understand. God does not think like me. I need you to repeat that. God does not think like me. One more time. God does not think like me. And that's so important because so many times I've run into people who just assume that God thinks like they think. I want this. God must want me to have it. And you know what the worst group of people are in this category? Pastors. Pastors. Pastors think that if it's something they're thinking, it must be something God's thinking. Maybe he's putting these thoughts in my head. And, and, that's, and, and especially as we look at this portion, it's, it's, this is the truth. God does not think like me, but what he's done is he's given us his word so that I can start to think like him. And so as you look at that thought process, I'm, I'm not saying that, that there aren't times might there, there might not be overlap, but this is the encouragement from God to hear his word so that you can believe his word so that you can truly begun, begin to understand what he is like because he does not think the same way that you think or, or me for that matter. So how does God think? Let's go to the next section. He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him 
in low esteem. God does not think like you, okay? And as proof of that, what I want you to imagine is that you were God, and specifically the second person of the Trinity, and you were going to come into the world, and you got to choose the body you got and the appearance that you got. What do you think you would look like? Yeah, John saying, Jonathan saying, like you, Pastor Dan. That's what it, that would be ideal. No, you, you, would, you would think of Hollywood actor. You would think of model. You would think of, that's who I would be. I would, if I got to choose my appearance, I would want to be the most beautiful. I would want to be recognized as the most strong. And that's what, what happened at the time of Saul when the people chose a king. Who did they choose? They chose the tallest one. They chose the biggest one. He's the guy. He's the one that if you look at the best appearance, he's got it. And the thing about it is, even today, if we were to, if I were to show you a Jesus movie and turn off the sound, you would know who Jesus was within a minute. I guarantee it. You always, it's like you, that you can just tell, like you watch and you say, oh, that's the one who's Jesus. Well, I'm telling you at the time, at this time, when, when Jesus came, no one knew. That, that it would have been like any other person sitting next to you, you would have said, I, I, I didn't see it. Because God doesn't think like us. Which is the reason why when the wise men came to see with the birth of, of the Savior, where did they go? They went to the palace. Why not? Why wouldn't I go to the palace? That's where kings are born. That's the way that I think. But what did they do instead? They went to God's word. They went back to God's word and say, no, what does, what does God say about where he was going to be born? And that was in Bethlehem. And that is where, where the savior can be found, bending the way we think to the way that God thinks. A second part, he was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. So he is a, a man of suffering I don't know about you, I try to get away from suffering. When I, when I go to uh, Costco, I buy ibuprofen by 500 or 1,000. That's what I do because I want to get rid of pain. And, and so I want that pain to stop. And, and so where do we turn? We turn all these different places to, to take pain away or to take our, our mind or attention off of the pain. Just make it go away. But that's not what the Son of God did. That's not what the Christ did. He came, he was a man familiar with pain and suffering. I know there are people here today who are in pain. And I know that there are people here who are suffering. Some of it's physical. And the physical pain has been going on for a long time. Some of you are, are suffering emotionally with hurts that run very deep. The message here is that God is also familiar with you. He is familiar with that pain. He knows that pain. And we're going to see that that is the exact pain that he came to bring healing to. That, that, it, that is the way in his ministry Jesus did. In the blank, you can write, God chose a life no person would choose. It started with a humble birth. 
and ended on a cross. So it's not self-serving. It's not about him. It's about you. It's about us. That's why the Christ, Christ Jesus came into this world. We continue. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God. Just gonna stop there for a minute. He took up our pain and our suffering, and we considered him punished by God. Do you see the great irony there? And especially if you were to look at the, the life of Jesus when he came and he, and he was with before the Sanhedrin, he was before Pilate, the, both the religious and the secular rulers of the day. And, and finally they took him, they found him guilty of a crime that he was innocent of. And, and they, they took him and they hung him on the cross. There was a, a time when those rulers of the Sanhedrin, the, the religious rulers were making fun of him. And they were making fun of him and said, come down, come down from the cross if you are the son of God. Since you, you said you are the son of God, come down for the cross now and then we'll believe in you. And it's in that moment and in those words that you see this truth so clearly. They considered Jesus punished by God, but didn't make the connection that it was because of the sin and the pain and the suffering that they had why he was there. And, and the truth that Jesus couldn't come down from the cross because of who he was, paying our, the price for our sin. We continue. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities the punishment that brought us peace was upon him and by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. In these words, we, we see how God does do his math, and we see how God does his reckoning, and it is so different from what we do. In the blank, you can write, God sacrificed his son for us and for our sins. All the pain Jesus endured, we deserved. And notice there it says there's no self-preservation. I want you to think about that just for a moment. And I want you to think about if you have ever been in the situation where you have been thrown under the bus, where, where you have been someone who has been the scapegoat, where, where someone comes and they say, oh, you're the one who, who didn't do this, when in, when in actuality it was someone else. How do you respond? I want you to think of work. When, when someone is going to be blamed, Someone is going to be blamed and they come to you when you were innocent. How is it that you respond? Immediately, you defend yourself. You say, no, this isn't, I'm not the one who did this. You're not going to blame me. And I'm not saying that's wrong. That, that as a matter of fact, in those situations, maybe especially at work, you need clarity. 
But my point is, is not whether or not the, the, the blame, the, of where the blame goes or who deserved it, but in that moment, how you felt when you were accused of something that you did not do. That our immediate reaction is self-defensive. That we get into defense mode and we say, no, this is not something that I am going to be accountable for. And that's why we see Jesus as we see him and we see how differently God thinks than we do. And specifically, as we look at the work of Jesus Christ, that's the very reason he came into the world. Not to preserve himself, but to preserve us, to find us not guilty. And how did he do that? He did it at the cross. And, and so hopefully in these words that are, are, he was punished by God, he was crushed for our iniquities, the punishment uh, by his wounds, all of those things, all of those pictures are pointing ahead. 800 years earlier, that was the time of Isaiah, to the cross of Jesus Christ, to show God's plan, the substitute, Jesus going to the cross, Jesus paying that price for us. That is not how we think, but that is how our God thinks, who came into this world to save us. We continue. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, And as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth." In this, we see the, the fact that he, he kept his mouth shut, that, that he said nothing. And, and a verse I want to have to, to help us understand this and, and to get a grasp for what we're being told is Romans 3, verse 19. And it says, we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law. So the God's moral law, the Ten Commandments, all of that, it, it says to those who are under the law, that's us so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Maybe you've seen uh, movies like this or, or real life TV episodes or something like that where someone gets arrested for a crime and, and they're arrested for the crime, whatever it is, maybe it's murder, theft, whatever it is, and the people are there defending themselves. Just, they're coming up with the story. This is where I was. I wasn't even near the place. All of that, that, that things like that. And then the police say something like, we have video evidence of you there. We have DNA evidence that, that you were at the scene. Uh, your, your blood was found, or the victim's blood was found in your car or, or on your clothing. And what, what usually happens then, I got nothing to say. Now all of a sudden, I'm going to have someone else come and defend me because my mouth has been silenced by the evidence. And that is what God is telling us when, when we sin and we, we come to him and we either deny that we sin or we rationalize or minimize what we've done. That, that we come to him and, and we have all the excuses 
That God is saying that, that when the day of judgment comes, you will keep your mouth shut. That God is not going to listen to it. There is no defense. There is no defense for what you have done, for what I have done. We stand before him guilty. And that's the way, the reason the law is given is to shut our mouths, to make us aware not only that we've done it, but that God has seen it. Now go to Jesus. Now go to the verse before that from Isaiah 53. Jesus, as our Savior, did not open his mouth. When he was before the Sanhedrin, when he was before Pilate, there were a couple times he spoke. But as a matter of fact, though, it said when he was being accused, it was surprising to Pilate that he did not make an answer to any one of the charges. And, and don't kid yourself, Pilate knew Jesus was innocent and what Pilate was trying to do was just get Jesus to talk. And here's why. The Pharisees came to Jesus in the temple courts and they asked him, is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? And they knew that in that question, it was a trap because if he said, do pay taxes, the people would hate him. If he said, don't pay taxes, the Roman government would come down on him. And they knew Jesus was going to get in trouble with his words. But what did Jesus say? Give me a denarius. Whose inscription is on it? Whose picture? Caesar's. Then give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. The people The Pharisees walked away. They couldn't stand up to him. We're told time and time again in the Bible, people were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as the teachers of the law. They asked Jesus, was John's John's baptism from from God or not? Who, Who was John from? And then he asked them in return. He said, okay, the Christ, whose son is he? Oh, he's David's son. Well, then how could David say, he said, my Lord said to my Lord, I'll make your enemies a footstool. David's clearly pointing to the fact that he's the son of God. And they had no answer. We don't know. We don't know. Then he said, neither am I going to talk to you. Pilate knew if he got Jesus to talk, he would be out of there within 10 minutes. Jesus, as these accusers came at him, would be able to answer him, or would be able to answer for that. They would, he would be able to set this all straight, his innocence. But Jesus did not open his mouth. And why? Why did Jesus not open his mouth? Because he wasn't there to explain his behavior. He was there to explain yours. He was there to explain mine. Don't miss it. The reason Jesus kept his mouth shut is because in God's eyes, he was guilty of your sin and of mine. He was there justly. It was the way that God could be just, punishing sin and yet showing love to us. It was the only way. The way of the cross was the only way. In the blank, you can write, the Christ is also called the word. What great irony that he had nothing to say about his unjust suffering. That he was not self-righteous. 
but rather he was guilty, stood guilty because of our sins. We continue. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him. It was the Lord's will to crush him. As you look at that, remember last week we said whenever the Bible has capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, that that is always referring to I am who I am, the Savior God. It was the Lord, the Lord, the Savior God, the great I am who comes to us in love, who comes to our rescue. This was his plan. This is the plan of God Almighty. It was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. He will see the light of life pointing ahead to the resurrection and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. I have to do it one more time. I just have to. I know I am beating this to death, but Isaiah 53 does as well. It was God's will to cause Jesus to suffer. And to, to, to understand how messed up that is, and, and to how, understand how much you don't think like that, I want you to imagine this. I want you to imagine there is a classroom with 25 children in it. And your child, or the child that you know, is the only kid who listens in the whole room. And so what the teacher says is, you know what? What I've noticed is you're the only child in this room who really listens. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to punish you every time one of the other children is bad. So every time they're bad, I'm going to write your name on the board. Every time they miss their recess, you're going to stay in for recess. Uh, If they do anything, anything like that, anything they do wrong, you're going to suffer for and it's going to come off of your grade. And, uh, you know, if they don't do their homework, you're going to get the F. And you'd be like, okay. Uh, I want you to imagine if you were the, the mother or father of that child when they came home and told you the teacher's plan for discipline in the classroom. You would go bonkers. You, you would be like, you wouldn't even be on the phone immediately, whatever, show up the next morning and say, hey, I just want to, you know, my child must have got a wrong impression of what you were saying, how there would be discipline in this room. It sounded to him like you were saying that you would punish him for the, all the wrong that was being done. And the teacher would say, yeah, it's exactly, wow, he's, he's a great listener, <laughs> only one in the class, so he got that down. And then you'd say, I need to go see the principal. And, and the teacher would say, go see the principal. It was his idea. That's the self-sacrificing God that we look at this and, and we say, who thinks like that? And the answer is the Lord. The God who looks into your life and says, how can I save them? And the only way to save them is to sacrifice myself which I am willing to do. That is how much you are loved by a self-sacrificing God who would do anything it takes to save you. In the blank, you can write, God Almighty is self-sacrificing. His sacrifice was worth it. It was worth it because it saved us. That sacrifice for sin was 
was good for all sins, for all people, for all time. To be able to tell you like I did before, your sins are forgiven. Child of God, washed with the blood of Jesus Christ. This is where I struggle with this message the most. And the reason why is, on the one hand, I, th- I could stop here and just say, you know, there's nothing more you need to know. It's, it's all about Christ and it's all about his sacrifice for sin and that is true. But there's another truth and that truth is having a relationship with a self-sacrificing savior like Jesus Christ not only changes my relationship with God in that my sins are forgiven and that relationship is restored. I'm a child of God with a future of heaven, with a purpose for my life. But, but it also then begins to change me and it changes how I not only look at my God, but it changes how I look at other people as well. And what begins to happen in our hearts is now we become more like our Father. We become more like our God who has forgiven us. And what happens is a a step, small steps of self-sacrifice that we begin to take because of our relationship with him. I'm just telling you, if you you are a first-time guest that is here today, you sacrifice something to come here. And that is your morning, maybe some extra sleep. And don't get me wrong, if you're a second, third time, you've done it too, but you're used to the sacrifice now. And, and slowly what happens as I talk about those next steps that we take, most likely that next step that you are going to take is going to require a sacrifice of some kind. And, and what happens is, the, and it's something that you don't have to do, it's something you get to do. In the same way that, that Christ, as he came into the world willingly to make the payment, to be self-sacrificing because of his love for you, what happens is now that we have this forgiveness in Jesus Christ and we begin to change the way we look at ourselves, we look at the world, we look at others, we look at God, all of that. And so the sacrifice, other sacrifices are made. That I'm going to sacrifice by, by going and being part of the love one another offering. I'm gonna sacrifice my time on, on the, the week of Thanksgiving and go deliver a meal. I'm gonna sacrifice some money of mine by saying I want, I want them to have it. We can sacrifice with love one another as, as we do that, but that's just one part of it. We begin to sacrifice in our relationships by showing love to a, a son, a daughter, a wife, a husband, an extended relative, a, a fellow church member, someone who maybe who has hurt us, maybe someone who uh, we've had a rough time with in the past. There are so many different ways. But the encouragement is this, is as you move forward that you say, what do I have this opportunity to be like my God? As I think like him more and more, what are the sacrifices I can make that are worth it? That are worth it because they are investments that are eternal. Investments that, that showing God's love and the forgiveness in Jesus Christ and sharing his word that I'm willing to, to make these sacrifices as Christ has made for me. It's my prayer that you begin to see those steps, that you see the next sacrifice that you are joyful in taking as God points it out to you.
Finally, Isaiah 53, verse 12. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong. Because he poured out his life unto death, he was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. That's showing Jesus again on behalf of his people that he makes intercession. And there's this picture that he talks to God about our, our, our debt of sin. And because he has made the payment that, that we stand before God forgiven. But, but it's also important to see that I, I will give him a portion among the great and he will divide the spoils with the strong. That it's showing that, that Jesus through his self-sacrificial life, for lack of a better way of saying it is, that he wins. He wins everything that is important. He wins the victory over sin, over death, over, over Satan. He wins. And that victory, we, we not only have the payment for sin, we also have the victory that Jesus has won over all of those things as well. And we get to live with that victory every single day of our lives. In the blank, you can write, through sacrifice, Jesus emerges as the victor who allows us to live boldly and confidently. He allows us to live boldly and confidently. As we walk before the Lord, the encouragement that we have from him is to walk humbly. And I'm telling you that this message today is a humbling message. It's a humbling message because it, it really shows the severity of sin. And, and especially as we look at it in our lives to see that it is a reality. But on the other hand, the reason why this message is also one of the most beautiful and most beautiful parts of the Bible is because it shows the lengths that, that Jesus, that the Christ was willing to go through to show you God's love. And he has done that and it is complete. And so if, if you leave here today, there are still going to be those who leave here today who are hurting, who are still familiar with suffering and, and who just need help from God. And be assured through a message like this that he is willing to do and capable of doing anything. He loves you more than you know. And, and rest securely in his strength. And, and it might be a time where you have to wait for the arm of the Lord to be revealed. You might have to wait until he pulls his sleeves back and you see how incredibly strong he is. But don't doubt that strength and don't doubt that he cares for you. Let's pray. Dear Lord God, we thank you that you have given us a portion of the Bible like this that points so clearly to the fact that Jesus is the substitute. Uh, that's why you call him the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is that sacrificial lamb who has been sacrificed for us. Now, Lord, now that we have seen everything that you have done for us, we ask that we would live in faith and we would live in peace also in everything that you have done for us. And now, Lord, as we go forward from day to day, help us to be more like you. Uh, help us to continue to go back to your word, to continue to go back to your love, so that in our lives we begin to change to be more like you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, before we close, if you would like more information about Crosswalk or to listen to other messages, head over to crosswalkphoenix.com or come and see us. Services are held at Cesar Chavez High School at 41st Avenue and Baseline on Sundays at 9 and 11 a.m. Visit our website for directions. 
And now some closing thoughts from Pastor Dan. What a perfect song choice to end with, especially with that reading. And that's, I, I wanted to just share that with you again. This is the verse, uh, the memory verse that we encourage you to look at. And it's Isaiah 53, verse 5. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. And that is my prayer for you and God's promise to you is that healing uh, spiritually, physically, and in every way, Jesus brings healing. And as you go, go also with his blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord look on you with favor and give you his peace. Amen.